What a comfort it is to hear of our identity in Christ as we gather to worship today as Christians. We gather as God's people, believers in this one who is our righteousness before God. He clothes us with his perfection. He covers us with his blood. That's why we will stand in judgment. As Psalm 1 says about the blessed man, the righteous man, uh, in contrast to the wicked person, the righteous man, the Psalm 1 man, the blessed man, will stand in the judgment. Whereas sinners will be blown away like chaff. So praise God that we gather this morning not as chaff, but as the children of the living God. What a wonder it should be to us how unified the Bible really is. 66 books in this one book, and some have rightly called the Bible a library of books, and in a sense, yes, that is true. If you want to emphasize that side of things, the different genre that we find in the Bible, the the different authors and so forth. Yes, it is a library. But I think even more importantly, even more fundamentally, the Bible is one book. It is one story with one author, the Lord. It is one story with a storyline. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. All of this in and through Christ. Creation in and through Christ, restoration or recreation in and through Christ, because remember, if we go all the way back to Genesis 1, God spoke and it was. We were made through Christ and we were remade through Christ and we will live forever through Christ. This is the story of the Bible. And one of the best ways to see this unity is to watch how the New Testament authors explain Christ and Christianity in relation to the Old Testament. Uh, There is a a big book that you can get. It's a commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. It's a really good reference work, and some of you maybe have it, Um, maybe not. But it is a good reference work, and it just shows us, as you go through the notes for any given book in the New Testament, it shows us the extent to which the New Testament authors very much are working within an Old Testament world, an Old Testament worldview. The way that they relate Christ and Christianity to the Old Testament in general, but to Abraham in particular, to Moses, to the kings and prophets, and to Israel as a whole. The Old Testament and the New Testament coming together as one great story. Romans chapter 9 through 11, these three chapters, is one of the most, if not the most, significant portion of Scripture to deal with the relationship between the Israel of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament. Now, for many of us, this is really not 
a question that comes into our minds very often. But it really is a key to unlocking the Bible. Understanding all the ways that the Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church relate to one another. And there are many nuances involved in this discussion. And there are many differences of opinion. But Romans 9 through 11 is a key text, if not the most significant text for that question. Although it will be a little while before we get there. So we're not going to be there for anytime soon. And I don't know what soon even means, but <clears throat> it will be a little while before we get to that chunk especially given all the riches that we must explore in the first eight chapters that end in that way over there on, the, on that poster. So it will be a little while. But today, fortunately, we get a little bit of an anticipation, a little bit of a taster or a glimpse of what we're going to find as we come to Romans 9 through 11 later. So if you would please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. <clears throat> Romans 3, 1 to 8. Paul has just spent all of chapter 2 addressing his fellow Jews. What is the Jewish mindset in the first century? How are Jews thinking? Paul's fellow people. How would, a, how would a typical Jew have thought about his or her relationship to God, the God of Abraham? What is the spiritual condition of a Jew who has rejected Christ? How does a Jew who doesn't believe in Christ fare in comparison with a Gentile who does? These are some of the questions that Paul addresses and answers in Romans chapter 2. But remember, he's presenting a larger, he's, he's in a larger discussion. The larger discussion is that all people are under sin and judgment and in need of the gospel. That's Paul's point as he goes from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20. Is he's trying to prepare the way for the reality of the gospel like a meteorite coming crashing in to a world that is an abyss. I've recently been watching a little documentary on Mars and uh, the world is like that. You see a little rover riding along Mars. It's just wasteland. It's just nothingness. That's the world Paul describes in 118 to 320. And the gospel comes crashing in, bringing all of this life, this vibrancy. That is what Paul is doing. He's preparing for that meteorite later, after 3.20. But in chapter 2, he's dealing specifically with the Jews as sinners. He's dealing with the Jews as part of the people of the earth who fall underneath God's judgment. And coming out of chapter 2, we must imagine how many objections there would have been coming from Paul's Jewish hearers. I mean, that's one of the things we rarely get insight into, right? When someone is writing, when someone, someone is articulating their viewpoint or their opinion, 
We rarely get insight into what exactly the opponent would say. And one of the great, uh, I think, uh, benefits of good writing that we might find out there is that uh, they anticipate their objections. Good writers anticipate objections to what they're saying. And that's what Paul does as he comes to chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. He anticipates objections to what he's just presented in chapter 2. Paul, of all people, understood the Jewish way of thinking. So listen to this. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, he tells us how he had been right in the middle of this worldview, this Jewish mindset, before Christ saved him. This is what he says. He says, He was circumcised on the eighth day, Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It is as though Romans chapter 2 is addressed to the old Paul. Do you see that? The way Paul thought about the world, the way Paul thought about sin, and God, and human beings, and Judaism, before he came to Christ, is essentially what we find in chapter 2. But it was also the mindset that he found when he went from place to place and preached in the synagogues. And so we see in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 3, what was typical of Paul as he goes around preaching. Now when they had passed through and Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And then in Acts chapter 19, verse 8, and he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So Paul was always interacting with Jews. Yes, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's primary target by God's calling, and we talked about this in chapter 1, his primary target are the Gentile nations. Those are the ones to whom God has called him to go. But as he goes into these towns, he goes into the synagogue, which is the gathering place of the Jewish people, and he preaches Christ to them. He preaches that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, and that the Christ, according to the Scriptures, had to come and suffer, die, and be raised. And so, Paul very much understood how Jews would respond to his message because as he goes to the synagogue, frequently he gets run out. Frequently he gets, uh, there's, there's this combat between him, not physically, sometimes though it gets a little aggressive, between him and those who are unhappy with his message. So in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul is not only preaching to the old Paul He's also, he also has in mind those to whom he had preached for many years in synagogues. Those who had attacked his message. He would have heard many objections to his gospel message. And even distortions of it from his 
fellow Jews. And that brings us to Romans 3, 1 to 8. In this passage, Paul simply addresses some of those objections. So if you would please stand with me. We're going to read this passage. This is Paul contending with objections to his message that he himself would have brought forward as the old Paul and that also he heard from his opponents in the synagogue. This is the Word of God. It is perfect and profitable. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. You can go ahead and be seated. Before I pray, I'll say this. It's always a little bit daunting when you start preparing in the week and you get to the stage where you're reading commentaries and you open up uh, the first commentary that you are reading and the author's very first sentence is, this is probably the most difficult passage in the entire letter of Romans. Really? This week? This is the most difficult of all the riches and depth of Romans? This one? But it is. It is challenging in various ways and so I'll just say this, and it's an encouragement to me as a, as a preacher, as a pastor. I'm blessed to be in a church where there is a genuine desire to be taught and to walk through and understand. You know, I think in so many churches, uh, the preaching on Sunday morning is really just sort of a thing that happens. There's, there's really no emphasis on the word after it's preached. It just sort of goes and falls, and, and it's meant to be kind of entertaining and so forth. But I am so blessed as a pastor to be in a place where the people of God genuinely desire to be taught and to walk through and try to understand, even if it is hard and daunting and tedious, to try to wrap our minds around the intention of the author as the Holy Spirit has inspired him. So I'm grateful for that as I come to this passage. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his help. Father, thank you for your word. We worship you now as we come to it to study it, to seek to understand it, to teach it and hear it, be taught. God, we just ask for your help. We pray that the exposition of this passage would be clear. God, that it would 
spur us on in holiness of life, that it would increase our confidence in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, that it would raise our affections for You and our hatred of sin, that it would increase our love for each other and our desire to know Your Word. Father, that you would sanctify us by means of your word. Lord, we recognize that Paul is sometimes tedious in his argumentation as he tries to explain exactly what he means. And Lord, it has been difficult for all of us as we've read parts of Paul in the New Testament. And even in Paul's day, as Peter said, many twist his words. And, but Lord, we thank you that It is a deep, deep hole that yields so much riches, so many riches, so much fruit when we come to understand little bits of what it is that he is describing about this glorious, profound, marvelous, awesome gospel. So Lord, we just pray for a greater depth, a greater understanding this morning. We ask for help by your Holy Spirit. Help in preaching, help in hearing, And that you would apply the word specifically, even in surprising ways, to each of our hearts. We pray for our children now, God, that your Holy Spirit would quiet their hearts so that they would be able to listen. Lord, that even the smallest of them would receive perhaps something today that would be of eternal benefit to their souls. God, we know you can do this, Lord. You've made them. And so we give you and trust to you their little hearts, and our hearts too, Father, now as we come to your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Righteous God of Israel, Part 1. As I said before, this is a little bit of a preview to what we're going to get in the larger chunk of Romans 9 through 11, which is a, quite a big passage. Today we're only going to look at the first four verses So next week, we'll do part two and look at verses five to eight. But for today, just verses one to four. Here, as Paul deals with objections, his big concern is to uphold the righteous character of God. So so get that very much in your mind. That is what Paul is doing. And in fact, you see that in your ESV Bible. If you have an ESV Bible, uh, above verse one, the editors have have characterized these verses or or entitled these verses, God's righteousness upheld. That is what Paul is concerned to do, to uphold the righteous character of God, particularly in relation to Israel, the Jews, his people. And he does this particularly with regard to two things. And these are going to be our points for today. And here they are as he is upholding the righteous character of God. He's dealing with objections, and these objections concern these two things, at least for these four verses. First, his chosen people, and second, his faithful word. His chosen people and his faithful word. So let's begin by looking at his chosen people. Look at verses one to two with me. Then what advantage has the Jew? 
Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So, in order to understand these two verses, we need to go back to what Paul has just said. What has Paul just argued that would elicit this response? In verses 25 to 29, he levels the playing field. That's, that's what Paul seems to be doing all throughout chapter 2, and particularly in that last chunk, verses 25 to 29, is he's leveling the playing field between Jew and Gentile when it comes to God's judgment. And in the last two verses, Paul strikes at the very heart of Jewish identity. I mean, it is really breathtaking. When you get to the end of chapter 2, now, when we hear this, we don't really think much of it. It just kind of passes right by us, and we try to understand what's going on. But to the Jew, this would have been like a slap in the face. Those last two verses of chapter 2 would have gone for the jugular, the Jewish jugular. Here's what Paul says there. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Well, if that's true, Paul, this is the objection Paul's dealing with in chapter 3. If that's true, Paul then Jewish identity is irrelevant. You've spiritualized the whole thing, Paul. What good is it to even be a Jew? Who cares? According to your message, there really is no people of God. There really is no advantage for the Jews. The objection goes like this. Then what advantage has the Jew, Paul, or what is the value of circumcision? So this is where we get when we come into the beginning of chapter 3, asking the question, Paul, if all that you have said so far in chapter 2, culminating in verses 28 and 29, where you essentially gut the Jew of his identity... As a Jew, as a circumcised Jew, as a physical descendant of Abraham, then it renders irrelevant everything about the Jewish people as a whole. And let me say this to you. This is a valid objection. For those of us who have just spent two years walking through Genesis Who've, who've heard God come to Abraham, who've watched God work in very specific ways through the literal, physical descendants of Abraham. We've watched God even bless Abraham through uh, Ishmael, through the sons of Keturah. We, we saw God working in very specific ways to bless Isaac and to bring about Jacob and his 12 sons and move them physically to Egypt by Joseph. So no one who's just spent that much time in Genesis can come away without a similar objection. And maybe you've thought that. Maybe you've been thinking that over the last week. This is... 
a valid objection, because if it is true that there is no advantage for the Jew, so hear this, if this is true, then it calls into question the entire, entire narrative and teaching of the Old Testament. Let me just give you three passages to consider where this is brought very clearly into view. So Deuteronomy 10, 15. Deuteronomy 10, 15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. And chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Then listen to this in Psalm 135, 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. Isaiah 43, 21. The people whom I formed for myself. That's how the Lord God speaks about Israel. Are you not reading the Hebrew Bible, Paul? All this you've said about the Jewish people? Are you not reading the same Bible that we read? The Jews are God's people. Of course, Paul knows all of this. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He probably had the entire Old Testament memorized, or at least large chunks of it. Paul knows all of this, and so he responds. <clears throat> What's the advantage of the Jew? He does not say there is no advantage. He says, instead, much in every way is the advantage of the Jew. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles, or as the NIV puts it, I think better, the very words of God. The Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. And Paul says that uh, this is to begin with. Much in every way. And then he goes and gives this as the one thing he's focusing on. And that tells us, because he doesn't go on to finish the list, it tells us, number one, that this is at the heart of it all. This is at the heart of Jewish advantage. And it also tells us that there are many ways in which the Jews are an advantaged people. The Jews, the Jews are the people of God. Because God chose them and gave them his truth, his revelation, his promises. Remember, Genesis chapter 12, when God came and, and gave his oracles to Abraham, it was a word of promise. It was laced with promise. I will do these things. I will do these things. The word of God is a word of promise. That's what we find when we go back throughout Old Testament history. The Jews are God's people, and they have God's word. Listen to how this is described in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And then Psalm 147, verses 19 to 20. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. 
This is the right response that God had given his holy law, his oracles, his very word, his truth to this very, very, very special people. And this is the message that we hear again in the, in the New Testament. Listen to the words of Jesus. In John 4, as he's talking with the Samaritan woman, he says to her, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And then Paul, in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, as he's anguishing over the fact that the Jews have not trusted Christ, he says, they are Israelites. And listen to this language. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. The Jews are the chosen people of God. And lest we think, now here's a controversial bit, and lest we think that this has somehow changed with the coming of Christ, because many, many, and, and particularly in the Reformed tradition, have said that this has changed with the coming of Christ. And yes, Christ is true Israel. And yes, as Paul will articulate in Romans 9, those who are of faith are the seed of Abraham. And yes, as Paul just said at the end of chapter 2, those who are true Jews are the circumcised in heart. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. Circumcised or uncircumcised. Yes, yes, and yes. All of this is true But nevertheless, it has not changed that the Jews are God's chosen people. The coming of Christ did not change that. We know this because of what Paul will say later in Romans 11, verses 28 to 29. Now, if you disagreed with what I just said, listen very carefully to what the apostle says. He's talking to Christians about the Jews as a whole who have largely rejected Christ. From the context, it is absolutely clear who he's talking about here. He's talking about unbelieving Israel, the nation as a whole. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. And yes, individually, if they die without Christ, they die in their sins and go to judgment, to hell. Absolutely. They are enemies For your sake as regards the gospel. But listen to what Paul says immediately after that. Remember, this is post-Christ. This is post-Pentecost. This is post-church. He says, but, speaking of the Jews, unbelieving Israel, but as regards election, they are beloved. They are beloved. They are beloved. Not they were beloved. They are are beloved for the sake of their forefathers which we know all about because we've been there in Genesis then listen to what he says for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable chew on that if you disagree with what I said a moment ago chew on that Regardless of what your favorite confession of faith says or your favorite authors or preachers, 
chew on the words of the apostle, the word of God. That is what Paul says. God still sees Israel as a thing. That's what you need to see. God still looks down from heaven, from his throne, and he sees a thing, an entity called Israel. He sees it, and he has seen it for the last 2,000 years of dispersion and persecution. He saw it in the 1930s and 40s. He sees it today. He has always seen a thing called Israel. Beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And I'm not talking about Christ as true Israel. And I'm not talking about the church. Because Paul's not talking about either of those in Romans 11. Verses 28 to 29. God looks down from heaven. And he sees Israel. Here's another implication for us as we go forward, as we think about our theology and go home and chew on that because I said before, I mean, we are a reformed church and many, most in the reformed tradition, I firmly believe have gotten this dead wrong, dead wrong. Many of the people I respect most, many of the authors and theologians and preachers and pastors that I love to read and benefit the most from dead wrong. On this one. Dead wrong. On this one. Here's another implication. Are we not also those who have received God's word? Think about it. What an advantage we have. What an advantage our children have. Children, those of you listening right now, I want you to consider this for a moment. God has so richly blessed you. Child, listen to me. Kids, listen to me. God has so richly and abundantly blessed you because he has exposed you to his holy word. There are people in the world who know nothing of the triune God. They know nothing of the shed blood of his son. They know nothing of his redeeming plan. They know nothing of the new heavens and the new earth. You are being taught in your home by Christian parents about the living God. I praise God every day. My mom and dad taught me about Christ and they brought me to a church and they exposed me to his word. What an advantage. Consider, just as Paul reflects on Jewish advantage, consider the advantage we have as those who have the word of God. So Paul wants to affirm that yes, indeed, God has a chosen people and they have his revelation, a revelation which includes many promises to their offspring. Well, that raises another objection. So let's keep going. Let's keep going. If this chosen people, his chosen people, point number one, if this chosen people, has been unfaithful or unbelieving, according to Paul's message, what does that say about God? So Paul, you're telling me that you, God's got this people. You recognize it. He's just said that. They, they're, they're an advantaged people. 
They are a chosen people. They still are the people of God. He's got this people, but they have largely rejected God. What does that say about the character of God? And that's the objection that Paul takes up in our second point, verses 3 to 4. So look with me there. His faithful word. Verses 3 to 4. What if some were unfaithful? So God's given his word to them. Some have been unfaithful. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And actually a better translation of this last phrase here. Uh, I, once again, i sorry, but I think the NIV gets this. I do prefer the ESV. Let me, just, let me just say that. In a sermon where I go to the NIV twice. But once again, I think it's true. The NIV captures this better when it says, and prevail when you judge. I don't want to get into grammar here, but the verb is a a middle voice, and that, I think, gets an active translation. So rather than saying, and prevail when you are judged, and prevail when you judge. I think the NIV editors translate that more correctly. All right, enough said on that. I'll move on. With this first question, you might get the impression that the Jews, as God's chosen people, have largely heeded God's word and become faithful or believers. What does Paul say here? He says, what if some, now follow what I'm saying here, what if some were unfaithful or some have been unfaithful? That implies that most have not. Most of the Jews have not been unfaithful or unbelieving, but some have Well, that would be the wrong impression. It is actually the opposite. And Paul is here using the word some in that softened way. We know this because he uses the same language in chapter 11, verse 17. Flip over there really quickly and you'll see this. Paul uses the exact same some language in that chapter, verse 17. After saying that Israel has largely rejected Christ, he says... But if some of the branches were broken off, those are unbelieving Israelites. Those are unbelieving Jews. Uh, God's people, Israel, is understood as a tree. And there are branches that have been broken off because of their unbelief and because of God's electing purposes. And those are Jewish branches. They've been broken off. And he says here, what if some... Or some of the branches were broken off. But we know from the context that it's really most. Most of the branches have been broken off. Because most of Israel has rejected its Christ. Most of Israel has heard the call of the gospel. And has said no thank you. Crucify him. Crucify him. Just as Jesus said when he preached and gave the parables. God has blinded the hearts of the Jewish people. So, we see here that some really means most, many, the majority. So here's the problem 
with Paul's message as you continue to follow. This is very dense logic, but I do want you to try to follow this. This is the problem with Paul's message. Here's what is being objected to in these verses. The second point, his faithful word. Here's what's being objected to. God has chosen a people, and most of that people fall into the category that Paul has just described in chapter 2. So Paul has just described Jews who do not believe, who do not live for the Lord. And what he's he's dealing with here is an objection where a Jew comes along and says, so if that's the case, Paul, then all God's chosen people have just fallen off. Most of the people fall into the category of self-righteous judges who do the very same things they condemn. Hearers of the law, but not doers. Breakers of the law who think they are shielded by having the law and circumcision. Those without uncircumcised hearts who live for the praise of men rather than God. Those without faith in Christ. That's the Jew of chapter 2. What does this say about God, Paul? What does this say about God? Paul is not shaken one single bit by this objection. Not even a single bit. This concern does not shake him at all. His answer, God remains faithful, of course. God is faithful. Psalm 33, 4, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 23, Great is your faithfulness. The God who rescued Lot. I've been going back through Genesis recently, listening to that. And it just amazes me what God did for Lot. I mean, Lot is portrayed as such a silly guy. I mean, what in the world is he doing? He, he's delaying. The angel has to literally grab him to take him out. He's done made his home in Sodom. He's about to throw his daughters to the wolves. And his daughters, what they do afterwards, unspeakable. I mean, Lot, there's Lot. But God rescues Lot on account of Abraham. This is the faithful God. This God who graciously worked in the lives of Jacob's 12 sons. And amazing, we get to the end of Genesis and all the sin. Simeon and Levi destroying an entire town. Reuben, sleeping with his father's wife, and all the sons selling Joseph into slavery. It's incredible. And that's not to even mention what happened with Judah in chapter 38, which was our first message here in this building. As a matter of fact, a weird way to kick off. But there we were. In all of that, we saw what? God's faithfulness. He will not abandon his people. Oh, there's so many times that God could have abandoned Abraham. He could have abandoned Jacob, the deceiver. He could have abandoned Jacob's sons, a ragtag bunch. He could have abandoned the Israelites in the wilderness. They're complaining. God has just saved them from slavery and poured out his glory and power on the Egyptians and parted the sea and given them food from heaven. Oh, complaining, complaining, complaining. God will not abandon his people. Praise God for that. 
Never. He is faithful to his promises. To his promises of ultimate salvation for Israel. Even if Israel has largely rejected him. So I want to go to another text here in chapter 11. And I want you to chew on this. Especially if what I said earlier was a little difficult for you. It it just didn't jive. Chew on what I'm about to read here again in Romans 11. This is a little preview. Here's what Paul says is going on with the Jews. 1125 to 27. Lest you be wise in your own sight, Gentile Christian, Protestant Reformed Christian, lest you be wise in your own sight, Gentile Christian, I insert that, but that's who he's talking to. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. So there's something to be probed here. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And here's, here he explains what's going on with the Jews, why they've rejected Christ. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Partial, meaning there's a remnant that has not been hardened. He talks about that in Romans 9. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. A hardened people awaiting salvation from the Lord at his second coming. Or preceding his second coming. That's the big answer Paul will get to. And we'll get there in Romans 11. And there's much nuance. There's much nuance to that. But we'll get there later. Here Paul takes a different road. And he quotes David in Psalm 51 verse 4. David has sinned with Bathsheba. Most of you know that story. David does an absolutely horrific, awful thing. He's driven by his lust for another man's wife. He takes that wife to himself committing adultery. And then he has... Oh, he has the husband of that woman who is a loyal, faithful soldier in his army brought to the front lines to be killed so that he can have his wife and so that his sin of adultery does not get uncovered. Man, it does not get any more atrocious than David's sin in the Bible. That's that's the lowest of low. That's the very bottom The depth of wickedness we see from David is sick. It is sickening. David has just done this and he prays to the Lord, verses 3 to 4. For I know my transgressions, plural, there's a lot there. And my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now before I go on to explain kind of how Paul's using that. Let me, just make a, let me just make a plea to you. Whatever you did yesterday. Whatever you did this morning. Today is a day to call out to this forgiving God. Because the chances are whatever you've done. Not worse than what David did. Call out to this God. Call out to him and do not hide your sin. 
Lay it before him fully. Confess it today before this living God and ask for his mercy. Ask for his grace. Have we not just read in Exodus 34 that he is a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? He forgave David. What? And he will forgive you. Come to him. But hide your sin. Perpetuate your sin. And you will lift up your eyes in hell. Turn and come to this gracious God. So what is Paul doing? What is Paul doing with this quote as we close this morning? Douglas Moo, one commentator, describes what Paul is getting at with this quote when he says this. Paul shows that God's faithfulness or righteousness is manifested even through the sin of his people. For God's words promise judgment for disobedience as well as blessing for obedience. Another commentator describes it this way, Leon Morris. He says, his punishment of sin is part of his faithfulness, not a negation of it. In other words, what is Paul saying? Paul gets the objection. God's not faithful. The Jews have rejected Christ. The Jews don't believe. They're chapter 2 Jews. God is not faithful. And what Paul says is, yes, indeed, God is faithful. And see how he is faithful in his judgment. Do you see how he is true to his word in doing precisely what he said he was going to do at the end of Deuteronomy when he said, if you obey my voice, blessing. If you reject my voice, cursing. Paul is saying God's faithful. Look what he's done to the Jews. Wow. That's breathtaking. He is a God of faithful justice. Amos chapter 3 verse 2 says, You only, this is God speaking to his people, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, that sounds good to the Jewish ear. But then listen to this. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. That's not what you expect to come. Clause B and clause A don't seem to fit. You're my people over all the earth. And then you expect God to just give them a big old hug. That's not what the second part of this verse says. It's not a hug. It's punishment. For all your iniquities, God shows his faithfulness to his people by blinding them and hardening them until a day of future salvation when the deliverer will come from Zion, when Christ will draw his people to himself, when they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn and the nation, the Jewish people as a whole will turn to their Christ and repent and mourn and weep. And the Messiah will return in glory for his people, all of his people. But judgment is a part of that story because God is faithful. That's the big idea. God's faithfulness stands even if every single person were a liar. His word of promise also comes with a word of judgment. And in all of his words, God can be 
trusted. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God can be trusted? Do you believe that God can be trusted when he says things to you from his word that make you feel good and that encourage you in times of sickness and times of doubt? But do you believe God's word when he says to you words that are hard to hear when you are walking away from him, seeking the world, straying into sin, neglecting the means of grace? Are you ready to receive those faithful words? Because all of his words are true. As Titus 1-2 says, God never lies. So what does this tell you, Christian? The Word of God, this holy book, this holy book is the only reliable place to stand. All of His purposes, all of His promises will come to pass. God will judge and discipline His people. In accordance with his word. But in accordance with his word, he will also bring ultimate salvation. And that's for all of his people. That's for all of those who come in through Christ. And don't hear me saying this. Those, the nation of Israel that will turn to Christ in some way, will turn to Christ as their Redeemer. There's not another way of salvation for the Jews. That whole, that whole understanding, that's poor theology. That's false doctrine. There's one way through Christ. He is the door for the sheep. But the nation as a whole will enter through that door at some future time, as Paul so clearly describes in Romans chapter 11. Psalm 100, verse 5, I leave you with this verse. For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for Your Word. So many things here to consider Difficult to chop through the logic here and to understand exactly what Paul is saying and what he's doing. We pray, Lord, that this has been edifying. We pray that you would take your word and make it clearer to us and applicable to us. That you would cause us to respond, if nothing else, Lord, to the majesty of your plan. What a grand design you have laid out in human history. And Lord, we're right in the middle of it. We're right in the middle of it. And God, we praise you that we get to play a role in this amazing drama of the bridegroom who came for his bride, both Jew and Greek. The Messiah, the offspring of Abraham, who on behalf of his people became true Israel and who for his people, according to the flesh, his kinsmen will return in salvific glory and make them his own. God, we praise you for your great plan. 
And we humbly call out to you this day and we ask you to be merciful to us in our sinfulness as you were to David. We thank you that you discipline us and in doing that you show your faithfulness. You are a faithful God in judgment and in salvation. And we praise you that you can be trusted no matter what. You are true, though everyone were a liar. We worship you, our God, in Jesus' name. Amen.